Let us pray. Lord, we are grateful for this time, and we pray that our meditations and the words of our mouth may be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. From uh, February to May, we have had outrage after outrage as the Trudeau government invoked the Emergencies Act, stating of course, that the RCMP asked for it. The RCMP stated that they didn't ask for it, and it isn't their place to ask the government to invoke such acts. It frustrates, it frustrates the country and the community when the government and law enforcement and courts at various levels do not do what they're supposed to do according to the role ordained and assigned to them. Now, we see almost the opposite happening To our neighbors in the South, the president and vice president are nowhere to be seen, absentee parents of sorts. While the Canadian premier takes away freedoms, claiming to keep his country safe, the American president is an absentee leader, letting the country do what it wants. It's frustrating when people don't do what they're supposed to, isn't it? It gets frustrating when overreach of power or the absentee leaders affect all levels of society. It affects our bodies, our bank accounts, our jobs, our ability to gather, and the moral fabric of society, doesn't it? This this just isn't about the person that didn't do what they're supposed to or did more than they were allowed to do. This is about everyone that their sphere of influence touches. It affects us all. When we don't function within our roles in the way we're supposed to, there can be detrimental issues, not just for ourselves, but for the people around us. And Jim, Jim McDonald, often jokes and says, the problem isn't with me, it's with them out there. It's easy for us to talk about the government overreach, spheres of authority, and people not fulfilling the roles they're supposed to fulfill, Because we see the problem out there. If the government of a country doesn't function within the model and spheres that God has ordained for it, and it adversely affects a country and its citizens, what about the family, the church, and society when the people of God don't function within the model and spheres that God has ordained for us? What about the family? the church, and society when the people of God don't function within the model and spheres that God has ordained for us. Conversely, think about the positive effect that godly husbands and wives can have on one another, their families, their church, and even their communities when we function according to the roles that God has given us. As damaging as it can be when done badly, it can be a blessing when done well. What about our roles in marriage? How does a husband and wife's role function in God's grand plan for the universe? How can we make sure that we do this well and reflect on earth what God is doing in all creation? We've been considering through the book of Ephesians how God's grand plan for the universe, which he purposed before time began. He's actively working out this plan through Jesus Christ 
by the power of the Holy Spirit in the church. Today, as we open up God's word, we will consider how the Holy Spirit's work in filling the church demands that every believing husband and wife fulfill certain God-ordained roles to demonstrate God's plan in the universe through Jesus Christ. So turn with me today. Our passage is Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33. Ephesians 5, verse 21 to 33. The sermon today has two points, heavenly and human. The heavenly reality and the human reflection of that reality. As we get closer to the end of Paul's letter, it would be good to get a recap so that we find our place in the message of the book. Paul praises God the Father for the grand plan that is in motion. All other plans, every movement of every molecule, every atom and amoeba, and Every large galaxy you may have seen in the latest picture from the James Webb Telescope are moving to one thing only, Christ's rule over the whole universe. All things in heaven and on earth will be under Christ's complete control, whether spiritual beings, human beings, plants, animals, microscopic creatures, every chemical or compound, everything is being put under the rule of Christ, and God has determined that the glory of Christ is displayed in the world through the church. The church is filled with the rule, glory, and authority of Jesus Christ. And the way he shines Christ's glory through the church is by taking dead humans, spiritually dead humans, and uniting us with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. He makes us right with God by raising us and seating us in Christ so that we can be displayed. God can show us off as objects of his grace and mercy as we do the works, the good works that he has prepared for us. At the same time, he gives us peace with one another because he makes us and he builds us together into one new humanity that has access to God. Christ's glory shines in the church as each member of the church is fit together to build a home for God. God dwells in the church through his Holy Spirit so that the glory of Christ will shine into the universe through us. As part of this fitting together process, God is also putting each member of the church under the authority of Christ. He does this by conforming our lives into the image of Christ Jesus, so that the glory of God shines through the church. And as the church continues to see and comprehend the incomprehensible love of God together in our gatherings, the church is filled with the rule, glory, and authority of God the Father. This process of God forming Christ in each member of the church results in new behaviors. We speak the truth of God's word, We encourage and build one another up and speak graciously to one another. We put away all evil conversations and move towards forgiving one another and being tenderhearted towards one another. We exhibit God's love to move together into the holiness of God. 
We shine the light of the gospel in this darkened world so that the works of darkness are exposed and so that unbelievers will receive the life of God. And finally, we worship God together as his people in songs and hymns. So not only is the church filled with Christ, not only is the church filled with God, but the church is together filled with the Holy Spirit. When believers speak, together, to, speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, when believers sing and make melody to the Lord in our hearts, when believers give thanks to God always, and when believers submit to one another, the church is filled with the rule, glory, and authority of the Holy Spirit. As we consider Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21 to 33, we are also considering the first two aspects of submission. Submission that leads the church to being filled with the Holy Spirit. We're going to consider submission and love between a husband and wife today. But before we start our first point, I want us to read chapter 5 and verse 21. Let's read it together. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submission in the letter to the Ephesians isn't just demonstrated in marriage, but it is a characteristic of the church. However, in the next 11 to 12 verses, Paul dives into the correspondence between submission in marriage and submission in the heavenly reality. Submission is the key verb here in God's grand plan, and we see it in Ephesians 1 verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. And he put all things under his feet. That's Ephesians 1.22. The phrase to put under is exactly the same verb, submit. He submitted all things to Christ's feet. The verb is used in two senses. The first one is to arrange something. In Ephesians 1.22, we see that God is, God is arranging everything in the universe under the feet of Christ. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to submit to the authority of, authority of Christ. It doesn't mean that everything will get its due, but it does mean that everything will get its due place under the supreme and sovereign rule of Christ over this universe. Another sense of the word is to subject oneself to the authority of another person, to acknowledge another person's authority over yourself. So when we submit to Christ, we subject ourselves to his power and acknowledge his authority over us. Now God's word says that we are filled with the Spirit when we submit to one another. What does he mean by that? Does he mean that everyone must submit to one another's leadership in the church? Does he mean that we are subject to and acknowledge each other's rule over ourselves? That seems very confusing, doesn't it? If we are all under the authority of everyone else in the church, that's just going to lead to chaos and disorder and contradiction with everything else that we read in Scripture. What verse 21 is saying is that believers are to have a mentality of subordination, and the order of subordination in the church, in marriages, in the household, with masters and slaves, all play out in the verses to come. Eventually, every member in the church is subordinate to, is subject to, submits to someone else who eventually submits to Christ. The submission here is concerning 
the appropriate authority over us. Submitting to one another is not the same as I submit to you and you submit to me and we all submit to one another. Submission in its core requires that one be above and another under. Submission in this refers to an attitude of submitting to those who are in authority over us. And what's the motivation? The motivation is the fear of Christ. Fear of the Lord and judge of the world to whom we ultimately submit. When we have this attitude in the church, the Spirit of God fills the church with his glory, rule, and authority. This is what Paul means when he says that submitting to one another is one of the ways how the church is filled with the Holy Spirit. Submission to those in authority, authority over us under the grand scheme of Christ's power and lordship looks very different for different people. But this week, we are going to consider submission and love in marriage. And in two weeks, as the Lord wills, we will consider submission and respect in other household relationships. For a believing husband and wife to submit to authority in marriage, we need to understand who the authority is and what submission in marriage looks like. For that, let us consider our first point, the heavenly reality. Whenever I've attended weddings or listened to sermons about marriages, whenever I see Facebook posts or even Instagram posts, I for the longest time thought that marriage was the reality and that the Christ-Church relationship was the metaphor. The relationship between Christ and the church is this abstract thing up in the sky, while the relationship between the husband and wife is the real one. It's the material one. When a couple looks into the metaphorical mirror, they're supposed to see the relationship between Christ and the church. That's what I thought. When I imagined eternity and realized that I would not be married to Sinana, I was very sad. I was disappointed because eternity and the heavenly model of marriage was like an idiom, a poor imitation of something good, a nice way of using earthly marriage to illustrate the relationship between Christ and the church. But a few years ago, I realized that I had it all backwards. As C.S. Lewis put it, this is the Shadowlands. The term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream is ended, this is morning. And that's what happens when things come to an end. Or for those of you that watch Stranger Things, this is the upside down. Some of you will get it, okay. Marriage here between humans is the metaphor. Marriage is the inferior experience of the more superior eternal relationship. Husbands and wives are the images in the mirror and the reality is Christ and the church. Our weddings and reception parties are mere shadows of the marriage supper of the Lamb. That wedding is the real deal. The everlasting love and relationship that Christ has for the church are the original, and the human institution is the copy. Ours is the inferior, flawed attempt at what is beautiful and true and good and lasting. And so I'm excited to go through this text with you so that we together can see what is better, what is true, what is holy, what is lasting. The heavenly reality whose purposes were set in eternity and will last for eternity. 
once we get past the cover page to the real story, oh, that is the beautiful one that makes any wonderful marriage seem like a mere dream, passing to give way to the morning. Let's turn to Ephesians 5.23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Christ is the head of the church. What does head mean in this letter to the Ephesians? The first thing is that Christ has connected himself to the church in a complete unit. That is, just as the head and body together make one person, God has used a metaphor to show that the unity of Christ in the church is one fleshness. In Ephesians 1.22, it says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. We see that Christ is the supreme authority of the entire universe, especially the demonic powers. In Ephesians 4.15, he says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. Christ is the one that nourishes and cares for the church as he leads the church to fulfill God's will. Christ is both the authority and Lord of the church, as well as the one that nourishes her and cares for her as she grows more and more into unity with the head. The goal is that in every way, the church would be the body of Christ, completely joined with and dependent on the head. While it is factually true that the church is united with Christ, Christ the head is also making it practically true in this present time as he nourishes and cares for the church to fulfill God's will. We also see not only is Christ the head of the church, but he is also the savior of the church. It says, Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its savior. The emphasis is on the word he or himself. The church has only one savior, and thereby each of its members, you and I, have only one savior. So together we can sing, Oh, I am my beloved's. And my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. There is no other savior for you, not your spouse, not your parent. You cannot save anyone, not even the person that you love the most. Dear ones, there's only one that's sufficient. Christ and no one else. Christ plus no one else is the savior of the church. All relations in the church, relationships in the church, especially the husband and wife relationship, need this undergirding truth, the absolute reality. Christ is the head. Christ, Christ is the savior. Christ himself. Christ alone is the savior of the church. Christ alone is the savior of your spouse. You are not their savior. And your spouse is not your savior. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, not only is Christ the Lord, the nurturer of the church, 
not only is Christ her Savior, but we see here that Christ loves the church. How he loves her, in which he loves us. He loves us with a self-sacrificial love. This is important when we get to our next point. Christ's love is characterized by a free will self-offering for the church. He didn't love the church because the church is lovable. He didn't love the church because the church is attractive to a holy God. On the contrary, the sacrificial love of Christ is what moves the church towards holiness and sanctification so that she is acceptable to a holy God. Verse 26 and 27, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ's self-sacrificial love is not an end to itself. His self-sacrificial love moves toward a purpose for the object of his love. There are three purposes we see here. That he might sanctify her, that he might cleanse her, that he might present the church to himself in splendor. He died for the church to sanctify her, to set her apart for himself through the preaching of the gospel. Ephesians 1.13, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The sealing work of the Holy Spirit sets the church apart to be Christ's bride. She belongs to Christ alone and no one else. Not just that, he sets her apart towards holiness. The preaching of the gospel and God's word is to purify the church from sins, cleanse her, and present her to Christ without blemish. He has already sanctified the church and continues to sanctify the church because of this. He has also already cleansed the church and continues to cleanse the church. In the prophets, we read that this cleansing power was promised by pure water. The Spirit of God cleanses the inward part of the church, the heart's of all believers. He grants the forgiveness and cleansing of sins as the word of God is preached to the church. In Israel, under the Mosaic Covenant, uncleanness had to be purified by washing it with water. This purifying ritual made the unclean person ceremonially clean and acceptable in the congregation of God's people. But in reality, the heavenly reality, God's word and God's spirit are what clean the inside of a believer and make them acceptable before God. God's word and God's spirit is what helps us participate in the congregation of God's people. Believer, Christ made you clean by the gospel preached to you and by the work of the spirit. And he continues to do so as you sit under God's word Sunday after Sunday, so that the church will be made clean practically when he returns. This is so that when he returns, he can present his bride to himself. Ha, this is no ordinary bride. This is a bride made ready and glorious by Christ himself. 
Song of Solomon 4.7. You are altogether beautiful, my love. There is no flaw in you. Ezekiel 16.14. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. For it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Christ's love for the church is magnificent. He himself died for his unlovable bride so that he can give the qualities that are completely foreign to her. He makes her holy and blameless, qualities that the church cannot possess on her own. Oh, I am my beloved's, and my beloved is mine. He brings a poor, vile sinner into his house of wine. I stand upon his merit. I know no other stand, not even where glory dwelleth, in Emmanuel's land. Christ is the Lord of the church. Christ is the Savior of the church. Christ loves and purifies the church. And we see that Christ cares for the church. Verse 29 and 30. For no one ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Now, nourish is a word used to describe how a parent cares for a child. We're going to see this again in chapter 6 in two weeks as we consider parents and children. Cherish cherish is a word used to describe how mother birds keep their eggs warm or how a mother takes care of her children. Why does Christ take care of the church as a mother takes care of her children? It is because he's the only one that can nourish the church to build it up into unity with him. Much more, we see that Christ nourishes and cares for the church because each and every believer is a part of Christ's body. Not a member like we talk about church membership, no, but a member like an organ is a member of the body. Like your fingers and your heart and your liver are members of your body. Christ cherishes and nourishes every member because he chose you to be a member of his body. The body that Christ sacrificed himself for was not his person, but the church. And this very care and love that Christ has for every member of his bride, who is also the flesh of his flesh, is the source and reality of the one flesh care that a believer, a man, has to give his wife. Christ loves his bride and takes care of her every needs, even as he purifies, cleanses, and sanctifies her. We see Christ's headship, we see his self-sacrificial love, we see his commitment to sanctification and the purity of his bride and the care for his bride, but we also see the church's submission to Christ. Let's read verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The church's submission to Christ is weaved right through the book of Ephesians. If the whole universe is made subject to Christ, then the church's voluntary submission to Christ is God's masterpiece. These people are transformed by God's Spirit, built on Christ as their foundation, 
taught by Christ, formed by Christ, growing full, fully to the measure of Christ's likeness, submitting to his rule and righteous standards, putting on his character, putting off all filthiness, singing praises to him, living in fear and awe of him. The church's submission to Christ is beautiful as she looks to him for his leadership and rule, living by his norms, experiencing his love and his presence, receiving gifts from him that will help her mature, and responding to him in gratitude and awe. If this relationship between Christ and the church is the greater reality, why is it that we don't read about this elsewhere in Scripture? Let's read Ephesians chapter 35, verse 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul quotes Genesis 2, verse 24, as he concludes this section. He does that and then calls it this mystery. Why is it a mystery? It's a mystery because we only understand what it means after the coming of Christ. And we understand that the point of Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, wasn't Adam and Eve or any other couple in the world. Every couple is merely a type of broken imitation of the ultimate marriage union. There is only one main marriage story in the Bible. It is a story of a father in search of a bride for his son. Paul says that the husband and wife becoming one flesh, according to Genesis 2.24, was always a reflection, a shadow of the one big marriage, Christ and the church. God has ordained from creation that the marriage union between a single man and a single woman, the definition of marriage from creation, would be the illustration, would be the reflection of the culmination of the entire story arc of creation, the union of Christ and his bride. So why do Christians make a big deal about marriages and whom it can be between? It is a big deal because God has determined from creation that every human marriage points to the marriage of his son and his son's bride. If that is the case for all humanity since creation, what does that mean especially for marriages between people in the church? people who are under the rule and authority and headship of Christ. Let us consider our second point, the human reflection. Let's read verses 22 and 23. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Paul addresses the wives, first of all, in this section of the submission. God asks Christian wives to be submissive to their husbands. This is how Christian wives can exhibit submission in or, as a means to being filled with the Spirit. If you were to ask the question, how can I be filled with the Spirit of God? Or even how can the church be filled with the Spirit of God? We have, in, this, in the same chapter, chapter 5, we have speaking in hymns and spiritual songs. There's singing and making melody to the Lord. There's giving thanks always. But the unique role that Christians, Christian wives have in helping the church be filled with God's Spirit 
is to be subordinate to their husbands with the ultimate motivation a believer can have as to the Lord. A believing wife's act of submitting to her husband is her action of submitting to the Lord. This does not put the husband on par with the Lord, no way. But the Lord considers it her service to God. Much more before one accuses Paul of being a misogynist. Look at who he's addressing. He isn't saying husbands rule over your wives. He isn't saying husbands claim dominion over your wife. He isn't saying husbands subject your wives under your feet as God subjects the universe under Christ's feet. No. Paul addresses the married sisters in church, wives. Voluntarily submit to your husbands as though you are submitting to the Lord himself. He isn't asking all women to submit to every man, but he is asking every married woman to submit to her husband. The motivation is not a different level of dignity or a different level, level of God's image. Rather, men and women, husbands and wives, have equal levels of dignity and are equally made in God's image. Rather, God desires that wives reflect and look like the bride that he is preparing for his son. The moment there is external coercion for a Christian wife to submit to her husband, it is no longer voluntary submission. At the same time, a Christian wife cannot submit to her husband without the supernatural work of God in her life. So just as the Holy Spirit brings the church to submit to Christ, even so, it is only the new life brought about by the Holy Spirit that can compel a Christian wife to submit to her husband. In verse 33, it says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Paul, at the end of the passage, concludes with the words, Let the wife fear her husband. This is the word rendered respect in the ESV. But the word respect has no basis in the Greek world. The word for fearing the Lord is the same word used in this verse. Fear your husband. As believers submit in the fear of Christ, verse 21, even so here in verse 33, wives are to submit to their husbands with fear. While the true translation for fear is the word terror, it may be a bit more nuanced when we see how the husband ought to treat his wife in light of Christ's relationship with the church. Many modern scholars assume that this command is Paul's alignment with what Roman culture and households were at that time. This entire passage, though, is countercultural and cannot be seen as a result of the patriarchy. Paul completely redefines priorities and reorders them under Christ. Both husbands and wives are called to imitate God's holiness and character in their relationships, not because the culture demands it, but because God designed it. Wives fearing their husbands and submitting to them is not a demand of the evil patriarchy. Rather, it is an appeal from God towards his daughters. Demonstrate God's grand and glorious plan for all creation. Does this mean that a wife ought to follow her husband's leading into sin and sinfulness? What's the scope of a wife's submission to her husband? Let's read verse 24. 
Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Paul repeats in this verse what he wrote in verse 22, but it is slightly different. In verse 22, he says that a wife's submission to her husband is considered submission and service to the Lord. In this verse, he's talking about how a wife, a Christian wife, ought to submit to her husband. We saw that the church submits to Christ's headship, which leads to holiness, Christ-likeness, and the fullness of the presence of the triune God in the church. It leads to the imitation of Christ. It leads to goodness, holiness, and truth, while understanding God's will more and more. These are the kinds of characteristics that a wife ought to reflect in her submission to her husband. God, through Paul, doesn't use the word obey when he talks about wives. He uses the word with children, and we'll see that in the next passage, children obey your parents. But with wives, he uses the word submit and qualifies it with the phrase in everything. What this means is that there should be no area in a Christian wife's life that is outside the authority and headship of her husband. Every area of her life is to be submitted to her husband, not because her husband has all the answers or does his part perfectly, but because she freely and voluntarily does this to reflect the church's attitude towards Christ. In everything doesn't negate the four and a half chapters of holy living and being subject to Christ that came before this section. And so the scope of the submission to the husband is as long as it is not sinful or contrary to God's command. What is the husband's role in reflecting the heavenly reality of Christ in the church? Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. We return to this verse because it gives the reason for why a wife submits to her husband as to the Lord. It's because as Christ is the head of the church, the husband is the ruler and authority of the wife. He is the one that nourishes her to help her grow as the head helps the body mature to its full stature. The direct parallels between Christian husband's posture towards his wife as the head and Christ's posture towards the church as a head also implies that the man ought to love his life his wife, sorry, he ought to love his wife and give up his life for her. This changes everything about a man's behavior to his wife. Husbands, love your wives, this is verse 25, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This doesn't mean that the husband has now become the savior because Christ is the only savior of the church and thereby, by implication, the only savior of any human being. What it does mean is that, men, you are dead. When it comes to your wife, you have died, and you will love and serve her as though you have given up your life for her. What does this look like? This looks like making her spiritual growth and sanctification your priority. It means making sure that the kids are fed, cleaned, tucked into bed, dinner is made, Dishes are washed, everything is put away, the house is clean, and she has everything she needs so that you can encourage her holiness. What this means is that there is no more me time, no more sports time, no more TV show time at the cost of your wife's holiness. You can't come home and say, I need to unwind, leave me alone. Husbands, when it comes to your wife, 
you are dead to yourselves because you need to bring her back to her Savior. You need to lead her to the one that can sanctify her. You need to lay down all your desires and comforts and dreams so that your wife will be presented as sanctified, cleaned, purified, just as Christ does with the church. Verse 28 and 29. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one has ever hated his flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. This is the kind of husband that makes it easy for the wife to submit to him. This is the kind of husband that a Christian wife wants to submit to because she is protected and nourished and cherished. Husbands, take care of your wife, for in doing so, you will take care of your own body. Let your TV stay turned off for a few weeks. Let your gaming consoles collect dust. Let your sports be forgotten. Let your evening out with your friends be a distant memory. When you stand before the Lord and give account for your wife, don't let it be that your career or your friends, your TV, your console, your golf clubs, or even your books had more time and attention than the needs, especially the spiritual needs of your wife. And you know she can't sit down and focus on scripture until the home is set and put in order. So your priority is to help set it in order and get into God's word with her. Your headship is nothing but an imitation of Christ. You do what he does and you follow him. Verse 33. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Verse 31, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This exhortation echoes the Shema, you shall love your neighbors as yourself, but applies to the closest neighbor. Who's the closest neighbor to the husband? His wife. Paul individualizes it to every member in the church when he writes, each one of you. Husbands, This passage doesn't apply to that other man who needs to love his wife better. It applies to you. You need to love your wife better. Not just better than yourself or equal to yourself, but as yourself. You need to realize that your wife is your body. You both have become one. Whatever imperfections you think exist in her, you need to love her and work on pointing her back to her Savior. So that as Christ washes the church with the word, she too will look more and more like the church. As Christ removes every imperfection, your wife too will be presented blameless and without fault. You are not her savior, but you can keep taking her to the savior. And you will do it if you see your wife as your own body. You cannot hate your own body because you do everything you can to preserve yourself at any cost. And you need to do that with your wife. Not that she becomes your trophy wife, or that she look, but so that she looks more like the church. A blameless and faultless and holy bride adorned for her bridegroom. She is your exclusive commitment and the priority of your life. The bride eyes not her garment, 
but heard your bridegroom's face. I will not gaze at glory, but on my king of grace. Not at the crown he gives, but on his pierced hand. The lamb is all the glory of Emmanuel's land. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your grand design. That in choosing a bride for your son, you have taken the most unlovable, filthy, stinking lot and made us what is fit for your son. We are grateful that this happened not just by a snap of a finger, but by the blood that does not perish. The blood that cannot be compared to the price of gold and silver. The priceless blood of the, of the spotless Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. Thank you that we have an absolute set standard in the heavens. And so, Lord, in our frailty, may your sons be like your son. And in our frailty, may your daughters be like the church. May we give in to the work of cleansing, of purity, and of holiness, so that together, as we submit, we may be filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit. We are grateful for your kindness and your patience and your long-suffering with us. May, us, may we, as husbands and wives, be the same with our spouses. Lord, we look for this dream to end and for the morning to come. We look for Emmanuel's land, and we give you glory and we give you honor. Amen.